Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hey, where are you going, Jim? The elevator's over here. Taking the stairs. But our meeting's up on 8. Yeah, I know. But that's 8 floors up. That's like 8 times 8. I don't know. A lot of stairs. That's the point. I've already lost a few pounds and earned almost $100 in wellness incentives. Whoa, you're getting rewarded for working out? Yeah, I know. I'm just as surprised as you are, Bob. Fearless is full of surprises. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits and sign up at fepblue.org slash chooseblue by December 11th. Welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we walk you through the top news in polls covering politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. This week, Margie and I were both in New Hampshire. Uh, Margie was there doing the Bloomberg focus groups. Uh, and I was up there at St. Anselm's uh, talking about the selfie vote with, uh, with, by the way, the selfie girls. That's right. The girls who are... Are, are young women, maybe, or do they call themselves a selfie girl? I'll call girl? them young women. Okay. They, they, they're called Prez, at Prez Selfie Girls on Twitter. Is that, tell me that's not with a Z. Oh, Prez? <laughs> yeah, that's it's with a Z. There's a Z. Okay. Well, anyway, those ladies <laughs> um, who've been taking their pictures, their selfies with every presidential candidate, plus Kristen. <laughs> um, so, I'm yeah. not nearly as exciting as Jim Gilmore, <laughs> let me tell you what. Not nearly as exciting. Yeah. What about Ling Chafee? So, um, so anyway, so we were both there at the same place with St. Anselm's Institute of Politics, which was a lovely place. And so we're going to talk about the Bloomberg groups. And you can, of course, hear about Kristen's book by buying it at theselfievote.com, correct? So Correct. So where you can learn more about that. Um, and then next week is a, uh, is a debate, is a Democratic debate. So you'll probably be able to catch us at a variety of places. I'll be, at least on the Democratic side, I'll be on Sirius, uh, POTUS in the middle of the day, and then at the Huffington Post. Post, pre-debate and during the debate, I guess I should disclose that my husband will be rooting for Sanders because he's part of the Sanders team at home with our children and, you know, seeing what, th- what their takes of the Democratic debate are. We learned what their takes of the Republican debate were. We'll see what Lucy thinks of the Democratic debate. Um, and then uh, and then if you haven't seen us this week, I don't, depending on when this comes out, on Meet the Press uh, daily with Chuck Todd, which is exciting, which we'll be on together. We're taking the pollsters on the road. We're everywhere. Onto TV. All right. So this week's top lines. There's some huge news in the polling world this week coming out of Gallup, no longer conducting horse race polling for 2016. But taking a look at the other 2016 polls that are out there looking at the horse race, we'll discuss on the Democratic side, where's the action um, as we're waiting for hashtag Will Joe show for the debate next week. Um, GOP voters seem to be wanting new candidates, but the top candidate of experienced voters is Ben Carson. Interesting. Um, we'll also look at a Suffolk poll that asks, what word describes Trump? You'll never guess what people said. Or maybe you will. <laughs> um, voters increasingly say they want government not to promote traditional values. We'll look at some polling going back over the decades about what voters think about the intersection of government and culture. 
It's also been a year since Brittany Maynard brought a lot of attention to the issue of death with dignity. We'll dig into some of the polling on where people stand on this issue and how the trend lines have moved. The workplace pipeline, when it comes to women in the workplace, um, is under scrutiny in a McKinsey study that came out that shows that women are a majority who start off in the workplace but wind up representing far too few by the time they hit the SWE seat. We'll dig into their study and see why. We'll also take a look finally at some traveling faux pas, things people do while on the road that drive their fellow travelers nuts. I do quite a few things not on that list. (laughs) True confessions. (laughs) So on the Democratic side, um, so the groups that I was in New Hampshire working on this week were uh, part of our ongoing Purple Strategies Bloomberg Politics collaboration. Um, So we did some groups with Democrats and Republicans in New Hampshire and in Des Moines as well. with undecided, undecided lean voters, both Democrats and Republicans. And as of today, when we're recording, the Democratic groups have been discussed and will be um, covered more on With All Due Respect on Wednesday and on Thursday with uh, with Mark Halpern and John Heilman. And there are a few things that I think were particularly interesting about the Democratic side. So the first, the big news is about Biden. And we're going to talk about Biden in the general. He's strong in the general, relatively speaking. I mean, not we'll, we'll get into those numbers in a bit. But among primary voters, it's not that they don't want to see him enter the race. There was this sense that, that he, they wanted to see more from him. Man, people use the word that they wanted to see him take a tough stance. They want to see him get out there on an issue or get out there and commit to the race. And I think that reflects the fact that, you know, even though he's a vice president, he's obviously been in office. They want to see him on the campaign trail. I mean, they don't say that, right? But they want to see him on a campaign trail doing campaign things, you know, introducing policy positions, mixing it up with the other candidates, not the kind of things he's been doing recently. Of course, not surprisingly, people like him as a person. This Again, this is Democrats. But they're, they want to see more from him on a presidential uh, level. And I think that's pretty newsworthy because I think there's this sense, and certainly the polls show, that he's been quite strong in the primary, even though he hasn't been in a announced candidate. He still draws heavily from Clinton. He's in, you know, the tw- favorables are pretty good. His favorables are higher than just about anybody's. He's at, you know, in the 20 to 25, 18 to 25 range, depending on where you're looking. So, you know, pretty good for somebody who's not running for office uh, quite yet. Um, but people do are waiting to commit until they see him also commit. So we we may see this change very very quickly or or not depending on what happens in the next few weeks. I was fascinated by the 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 clip where, you know, the participants were shown footage from the appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert because that was that was a big clip that got everybody talking. It was in the first week of of Colbert's new show where he got really emotional talking about his son. And this kind of comes on the heels of just this week, I think it was Politico ran that story saying, we have sources telling us that Biden was the one that told Maureen Dowd to write that column about how him running for president would have been his son's last wish. So the sort of the emotional context around Joe Biden has been a big thing in the headlines. And it was fascinating to me. I mean, it seems like in your groups that there were folks that were saying like, yeah, I I feel emotionally for him, but that's that's not enough. Right. And I guess, you know, 
that's something we've always known about Joe Biden is that his emotion, he's very emotionally available. He's juicy. I think Peggy Noonan once called him or somebody called him, you know, which I think is a very good word. I mean, he's, you know, he he loves perhaps more than any other candidate on both sides of the aisle, loves the personal interconnection with voters um, in a Clintonian kind of way, Bill Clintonian kind of way. And um, and so I think people know that, right? They've got that people were referring to in the groups of Photos they've seen of him and the president, you know, yucking it up with kids and stuff. So they they have a very, very clear sense of who Joe Biden is as a person. They want to see more about Joe Biden, the candidate. And it's understandable, given that he hasn't been a candidate, um, that they feel like they haven't heard that in a while. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what what were their reactions then to uh, to Hillary Clinton? What what came out of the groups around her? So you know, so it, it, initially they weren't very concerned about. I mean, they didn't really express a lot of concern about the email story, which I think is consistent with what we've seen in the polls. Again, these are Democratic primary voters who are sort of middle of the road. So we don't we didn't have any super strong folks for anybody in the group. Um, and, and nonetheless, they you know they want and they felt that she was very experienced. They thought she'd be the candidate. Better suited to um, to you know uh, work with you know to take on Putin I mean they really thought that she had you know leadership skills that were uh, that were incredibly strong um, there was still some hesitancy from some that felt that she had a sharp edge to her there was debate between among women and men that she spoke too much too forcefully about gender which was was an interesting finding um, and I don't know if we'd find that as a consistent finding but it was something that that struck struck some and it was in reference to a clip that we showed um, and then uh, for Sanders we saw some enthusiasm about his message I mean some real sense of you know the, the some sense of, of the specificity of his message people understood that he was fighting for uh, income inequality, and, and pe- that seemed to resonate with people. Um, but they still tried to wonder, they still tried to sort out and hadn't really come to a real resolution, who's going to be able to work with Congress and get something done? What can the president do? And, you know, it doesn't, you know, at some level, you, you can't, you're not just electing someone to be president because of what they say, but their ability to, to navigate Washington, or do you want someone as an outsider or who, you know, is above that sort of interaction? So there was some real dialogue about that um, in the group, and, and it wasn't clear where they landed on them, but they saw pros and cons for for all the candidates. In the NBC Wall Street Journal polling that came out this week, um, you did see this really big jump since June of the percentage of Democratic primary voters who say they could see themselves supporting Sanders. So, you know, we've talked on the show a lot about the fact that um, people people like Bernie Sanders. The reason why they're supporting him is not because they dislike right. Hillary Clinton. It's because they like Bernie Sanders. With that said, um, on this question of what percentage of Democratic primary voters say they could see themselves supporting Hillary Clinton, it had started out over 90 percent in June and has kind of slipped to around 75-ish percent. Uh, now, which that's still very high. It's still the highest percentage of yeah. anyone else in the field. So, you know, not to say, oh, look, she's got this huge weak spot. I mean, she's still under consideration by three out of four Democratic voters. But she's the only candidate that's seen a decline while folks like Joe Biden and really Bernie Sanders have seen big increases in the proportion of Democrats that will consider them. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, part of the, I mean, I guess they call this, right, the penalty of the lead, right? I mean, you have Clinton, who people have known. She's been in the public eye for a long time. You have Sanders seemingly moving up. And a lot of that is just introducing himself to folks. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's not, you know, he's the same Sanders, you know, he's been talking about a lot of these issues for a long time. It's that he's now, you know, he's now out on the road, as it were. 
And when you take a look at the uh, the matchups here uh, in these NBC Wall Street Journal Marist polls of Iowa and New Hampshire, um, there's they they do the matchup you know the two different ways, right? Where one they have Biden, one they don't have Biden, and it's pretty clear that um, you know Bernie Sanders holds on to quite a bit of his support even when you throw. Joe Biden into the mix that, um, you know, Bernie Sanders stays uh, at 42 percent in New Hampshire, uh, which he's at 48 percent when you don't have Biden in the mix. Yeah. He, he only falls six points when you throw Biden in um, over in Iowa. He's at 36 points when there's no Biden. But when you do ask about Biden, then Bernie Sanders falls um, eight points to 28. Uh, but, you know, it's Hillary Clinton that falls much more significantly when you add Joe Biden into the mix. So. Yeah. I mean, this is as as we wait to see, will Joe show? Will he show up at the debate next week? Um, it seems to me that if you are Bernie Sanders, it's not a bad thing if Joe Biden shows up. Whereas if you're Clinton, that creates creates some complications. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we're, it's all going to be pretty exciting to watch. I mean, the you know, the other thing that I think is worth noting about the NBC Wall Street Journal Marist poll, and we've seen now in a couple polls over the last week or two, is you had this surge for Sanders as he was introducing himself to folks. You had Clinton drop a little bit. It's almost as if that stabilized a little bit in the last few polls. Mm-hmm. This NBC Wall Street Journal poll, Marist poll, doesn't shows basically no movement from their September poll. They show movement from June and other polls show a lot of movement over the summer but the last few polls we've seen have shown things kind of staying where they are so maybe the debate will change things as the way they the debates have been changing things on the Republican side mm-hmm. Maybe not. Maybe as, you know, we get closer to New Hampshire and Iowa, things will start to, you know, roil a little bit more. If Joe Joe Biden decides to come in or out, that'll obviously change things. So um, so there's still some events that are happening. But the last month, it hasn't been that much movement. Well, let's talk a little bit about the movement on the Republican side, because it, it actually has not been as dramatic as I think some folks might have thought. Um, you know, given that Donald Trump last week we talked about is the Trump bubble bursting. It doesn't seem to be bursting in dramatic fashion. <laughs> Maybe it's deflating slightly, but he still remains uh, basically atop the polls. Um, in that NBC Wall Street Journal Marist poll um, conducted in Iowa and New Hampshire, you have Iowa Republicans um, still picking Donald Trump at 24 percent, followed by Ben Carson at 19 percent, Carly Fiorina at 8 percent. So you still have this dynamic where a majority of Republican voters are still leaning toward those those three candidates. But it is a slight decrease. Um, ben Carson's down three. Donald Trump's down five. Um, Carly Fiorina's up three, actually. And, and a, a handful of other folks, Jeb Bush is up one. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Bobby Jindal are all up two. I think Bobby Jindal at his, you know, small little 6%, but he's actually the interesting story there because he's someone that has not been in either of the major debates yet. And so now there's this push, well, why shouldn't he be in the next debate? You know, you've got folks like Rick Santorum where they've had their chance to be on the national stage in a debate. They're shrinking. In In the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, Santorum's one of the candidates that's had the biggest decline in the proportion of Republican voters who said they could see themselves supporting him. Wow, yeah, um, look at that. You know, so you've already got, I mean, then again, I guess Rick Sant, you know, you, you've got a handful of these folks like a, a Rand Paul um, or a Chris Christie, or, you know, who they've kind of had it their, their chance. Right. Or somebody like a Huckabee who already ran for president last time. And he also, right, Mike Huckabee has had a big decline in the proportion of Republican primary voters who say they could see themselves supporting him. So 
there, you know, depending on which metrics you think are important, there's a lot of arguments to be made that maybe Bobby Jindal does now deserve to be in the mix because he's at 6% in Iowa. Right. I don't know. I don't know. So are you using now a mix of atmospherics or some judgment plus poll results? And are you using early state polls? Because that's another big thing, too. Right. There was a big complaint in the past, oh, well, they're using these national polls, whereas someone like Carly Fiorina would always say, I'm doing better in Iowa than I am doing nationally. Right. And when she finally made it in, now look what's, you know, she's at, she's at the top. And, you know, we should talk about this for a minute because there's a Republican debate at the end of the month. It's the 28th, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, they are, and it's on CNBC, and I'm doing this from memory, so hopefully I have all the story. It's on CNBC, and they are just having one debate, and they're using people who are over 2.5% in the polls. I think so. And so it's a little bit different because there isn't, you know, there's no consolation prize. You're on the stage or you're not. Everybody who's over 2.5 gets to be on. And Lee Mirigoff, who we've had on the show from Marist, who previously said, I don't want my polls used for the first debate because people are doing crazy things in order to get to juice the polls so they can get into the debate, now says, there was a Politico story, that's fine because there's been other things happening. There have been debates. People have had their shots. So I don't have the same hang up as I did before. Yeah. you. See, I mean, you'll still have the, the problem of you know, the difference between 2% and 3% is statistically not real. I mean, even if you're adding up a whole bunch of polls, it's still it's still kind of dicey, but you have right. to draw the line somewhere. And so they had, you know, folks have had their chance to get their message out there. It, this is not the summer anymore. It's, right. it, we, we've graduated to big kid school. So, right. right. And, um, you know, and in the subhead, I kind of had a quibble with the subhead of the political story. It said, you know, worries about polls inaccuracy and like, well, it's not that they're inaccurate. It's There was a quote, and now I'm afraid I don't know who said it. It said, you know, we're using polls that are meant to measure pounds to measure ounces. Like there's, you know, we're looking for such a granular result from a national survey that may have 400 Republican responses. It may be a survey of voters overall that has a subsample of three or 400 Republicans and then looking at the difference between, you know, candidate 11 and 12 out of 15 and you know that's just a lot that's a heavy lift for for a single poll to be able to do yeah well let's talk for a little bit then about this whole question of accuracy of the 2016 polls because i think this gallup headline is a is really big news it is uh so for for our listeners who have not been following this story uh gallup in 2012 um, their final ballot test showed that they thought Mitt Romney ha- would have 49 percent of the vote to Barack Obama's 48 percent of the vote. And, of course, we know that that's, that's not correct. So Gallup went and did a lot of soul searching, um, did a lot of sort of, I guess, the, the more academic version of soul searching. You dig through your data and you figure right. out what went wrong. Um, you know, put out a big report saying, look, we got some things wrong in terms of how we weighted race, um, that the makeup of our sample in that regard was wrong, and we want to get this right before we go back into doing horse race polling. And they're now coming out and saying, you know, we don't feel confident that we can do horse race polling well, so we're not going to do it. Right. And it's not to say that – and, like, I'm kind of a defender of Gallup on this. They're Mm -hmm. not saying we're a junkie pollster. They're saying – Polling in a horse race, particularly in a primary, is really, really, really hard to do well. Right. And so if you're a media organization, sure, you can do a poll. And if it's right or if it's wrong, it's, it's you know, you'll find out at the end of the day. But for Gallup, where your brand is you do polling. Exactly. Polling a primary is really hard. And it's just it, your credibility is on the line too much. And knowing what we know now about how low response rates are and how expensive it is to do high-quality polling, for them just to say – 
you know what? Just let the media people do it. We're right. going to sit this out. There's, I don't blame there's, them. There's, I don't blame them either. There's plenty of data out there. I mean, obviously, we're not going to shut down the pollsters podcast because <laughs> Gallup's not doing horse race polling because as you probably have gathered, there's plenty of polls out there to talk about. So there's plenty of people doing actually quite quality polling mm-hmm. where you see consistency across polls and across outlets that you know leads you to believe that things make sense. Um, you know, Gallup has a lot of other assets, a lot of other you know products a lot of other data that they are sharing, you know, publicly on all kinds of topics. And, you know, it, it, it does, that, does that stuff all get put into jeopardy if they're off by one or two points in a general election in a polling climate that is basically, you know, impossible for everybody, that everybody admits is, you know, changing dramatically in, in a way that's you know, making it harder. Um, and so it makes a lot of sense. While a media outlet, if their poll doesn't get it wrong, one, they can, you know, they're, they're that partner with, they're not actually conducting it. They partner with another outlet that actually conducts the poll. someone that gets thrown under the bus. And and also they have a variety of other, you know, they have all kinds of other things that they are, you know, that is part of their core brand other than nailing, you know, one or two point spread in the in the last final yeah. poll. Well, and plus, as we, we discussed a little bit a couple episodes ago, Gallup was the one that was facing that class action lawsuit about um, people saying, somebody who said, hey, you dialed my cell phone using an automated dialer. And they had to put like twelve million in a class action lawsuit settlement fund. Um, so you know, I think the idea is like in order to really nail something like a primary ballot, you got to call a lot of cell phones. You got to and and you got to yep. do a lot of this. You got to jump through a lot of hoops, yep. and it's hoops that now with all of this regulation, the last thing I'm sure they want to do is have another twelve million dollars they got to pay out in some lawsuit. So right. I, you know, I don't and, blame you, them. and you see Pew, you know, moving away from doing a lot of pol- hard yeah. political, and we have some today actually, which is unusual. We usually don't have that much like Pew 2016 kind of stuff the way we do today. Um, so they've moved away from some of that. You have Gallup now moving away. You know, it, 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 you know, I don't blame them either for all the same for all the same reasons that Kristen said, especially when they have so much that they share, basically open source publicly to folks that you know, very generous in how they share the data that they do have for folks to cite freely all the time. And, you know, we should try and get Frank Newport on the show or somebody to, to dig d- deep in this further. Oh, I would love that. I, I, Frank Newport's great. I would love If you're that. listening, Frank, or someone who works with Frank, Frank. <laughs> we, we love you. We haven't sent you an email yet, but we will. And we want you to come on the show and talk about this. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit then about these general election matchups. We've, we've had a chance to dig into both sides. Um, what are we seeing? There's, there's some new Quinnipiac polling out of Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, some really big general election states, um, taking a look at a whole host of different matchups where pretty much um, Biden, Clinton, and Sanders are all matched up against Jeb Bush, Ben Carson, Carly Fiorina, Marco Rubio, and Donald Trump. Uh, this In mar- three different states. In three different states. So there's a lot to look at here. But the overall theme is that Biden seems to be the strongest of the three Democratic candidates kind of no matter who your matchup is. And Ben Carson typically seems in in some states, I mean, Florida is a bit of an exception because of, of Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush's strength there. But Ben Carson really seems to be um, the the strongest Republican candidate in yeah. these matchups. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm 
There's so much here to look at, right? Because remember, you know, Biden is not announced candidate. He's third in a three-way matchup. He's the strongest in the general. Um, he's the only, you know, the only time he trails a Republican in these matchups is versus Carson in Ohio and Pennsylvania, kind of surprisingly. But anyway, where he, you know, sort of a home base. But um, while you have, uh, you know, other Democrats, both Clinton and Sanders trailing in some of the other matchups. Now, again, these numbers aren't dramatic. I mean, the only place where the, the spread is double digits is in two two head-to-heads, and that's Sanders versus Carson in two states. Every place else we're talking about single-digit races here. So these aren't, you know, major, major differences. Nonetheless, Biden is clearly the strongest. And then that Carson is the strongest is something that, you know, I feel like we we all collectively need to understand a little bit better. You know, for, for one, you have, you know, overall Gallup shows, that fewer people want government to promote traditional values. That's part of Carson's appeal when you t- listen to Carson voters and you know what he's what he's known for. Um, if you look at what Pew released recently, uh, the Republicans who say that they care about new ideas and a different approach, they vote for Trump. A third of them are voting for Trump. Of the voters, now this is only about a third, or fewer than a third of Republicans who say they care more about experience and a proven record. Republicans, as we've talked about before, they they want outsider. They want something new. Those are Trump voters. The experienced voters are voting for Carson. 13% of folks who say, I care about experience and a proven record, are voting for Carson. First of all, it's not that much of a lead. More of them are undecided. You have a third undecided. But still, you know, he's he seems the lead, has the the thinnest of a political resume of everybody. I think that's, you know, I'm not that's not a partisan perspective. I think that's a fact. But, I mean, I find that really, you know, really strange. And so I, I, I find them... A conundrum about Carson. He's doing well in the general. He's been incredibly popular overall. He's leading in or tied or getting close to tied in some states. Um, he, you know, in the Republican primary with, uh, with Trump, he leads with folks who want someone who with experience. You know what? What is going on? Like, <laughs> you know, the media is not covering him lovingly. You know, no. they've undercovered him this whole time. Now he's getting coverage, but it's all you know. It's mostly critical. At least you know what what comes to me. Well, what do you think is happening? I, I think if you ask Republican voters who they have a favorable attitude about, you know, Ben Carson is someone who's always really had very strong favorables on the Republican side. And he's one of those candidates that in that NBC Wall Street Journal poll, um, you've seen the proportion of Republican primary voters who say they could see themselves supporting him has grown from 50 percent to almost 70 percent. He's now the candidate who has the widest potential appeal of all Republicans within within the Republican primary. So I, I think that's part of it. To this question about experience and new ideas, what I, I want to go back, and I think we talked about this exact same poll question back in March when Pew first right. released it. And I think you and I both commented on how weird the result was in March, because back in March, you actually had more Republicans saying they privileged experience and a proven record, 57 percent, right. a, ma- a significant majority. Right. And the Democrats were more, slightly more likely to choose new ideas and a different approach. And we said that what's really ironic here is it's like they haven't figured out who their candidates are yet right. because the Democrats have the Hillary Clinton who's all experience and Republicans have this huge field full of fresh faces. It seems like their preferences have now caught up with who they're, you know, who's on the menu for their party. Right, right. But now Republicans have flipped and you have two thirds of Republicans. It's gone from 36 percent to 65 percent 
of Republicans saying new ideas and a different approach is what they want. Big change since March. They figured out who their field is and they've adapted their preferences accordingly or vice versa. Their preferences have changed. And as a result of seeing the field, that's why we have Trump, Carson, Furina at the top. Yeah, who knows? I mean, you have more Republicans satisfied with their fields than in the past. You have more Republicans satisfied with their fields than Democrats. Again, that's from Pew. I mean, you know, it, it, it could be that people are... You know, finding Carson and they, they're looking to him as just somebody, you know, is just complete, the complete anti-politician. Somebody you know? who's different. And that Trump and Fiorina still have enough to, like, I still have a little too much, like, insidery thing for them when, when Carson is, like, a full 180. I, I don't know, but, you know, it's something that we're still, is still evolving. I mean, the other thing that I think is worth, you know, when it comes to Trump, right, because, you know, he's been on the lead, has his bubble burst. He's still not a strong general election candidate. I mean, that's, you know, that's still true. If you look at the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, as well as the Quinnipiac poll, you know, you see that Democrats do a lot better relative to Trump than any of the other top tier. And then this came out, this lovely nugget came out right after we recorded last week. So as I was walking back with all the equipment, I see on this, we have TV screens like right outside the sound booth. And I see on the TV screen, like poll shows, you know, plurality think Trump is an idiot. I was like, oh, (laughs) why did that come out? Like as we were recording. So (laughs) we're talking about it now that this was in Suffolk, USA Today, the plurality, which is only 98 respondents, you know, said something in an open end, idiot, jerk, stupid or dumb as some how they would describe Donald Trump. I want to know how they coded these openings. Right, because don't they all look kind of the same? Because second is arrogant, third is crazy, (laughs) fourth is buffoon. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm wondering, so idiot, jerk, stupid, and dumb. I feel like that's actually (laughs) stupid and dumb. I can see you grouping those together. jerk is kind of different. maybe you put in with arrogant, or maybe you put it in with... Uh, egotistical, narcissistic, selfish at forty-one respondents. 4%. I don't know, right? How do you how do you decide which words? I, I might have done bigger groupings. Like these are people whose responses were things that say he's untrustworthy. These are people that say <laughs> something about him being a showman. Here are you know like they, I guess they tried to group certain words together. But I mean, you I can't c- imagine having this task. I don't know, right? They must have had a good laugh doing this because <laughs> you know you know. I guess I don't know if this just said what's one word or just how would you describe him. So I don't know if they had like, you know, if respondents were able to give a full sentence and then they had to combine it, which would have been even more entertaining. Here's another grouping that's fascinating. When they coded these open ends, they coded exhilarating, exciting, and ballsy together. (laughs) I hope that doesn't violate our clean rating on iTunes. I don't know. Um, I mean, you have one that's bully, but then you have another one that's big, you know, big mouth and mouthy. I mean, these are words. I mean, it's just these words are fantastic. I mean, these are... I mean, they, they mirror Donald Trump's own tweets, you know. I mean, <laughs> these are words you never, you know, you'd never see in a poll. You'd never be like, oh, can, where's our question about ballsy? Oh, yeah, I don't have it. And so, <laughs> sorry, that got, sorry, I meant, I meant to put that in there. I, we cut it by mistake, you know. <laughs> so it's definitely a pretty fun, fun little list, which, as always, we link to in our show notes. Um, so moving on to... 
some issues. Uh, California, we're going to just touch on this briefly, but California just this past week signed a new death with dignity law. Um, and I've done some work with the group Compassions and Choices, which has been leading uh, the effort on this. And Pew uh, went over some of their past data, which is worth taking a look at it, as this issue uh, now I think is going to resurface and continue to be discussed in a variety of chambers where they, their phrasing, I have a quibble with, but even with their phrasing at Pew's shows a real steady uptick over the last few years of the percent that say we should have, you know, there should be a death with dignity provision that should be allowed, right? Or a doctor, you know, what what they call doctor assistant suicide. That's not what the movement calls it because um, because they it, the doctor doesn't actually you know, perform it. It's something that you do yourself. It's not suicide. It's something It's death choosing how you die. And if you phrase it that way, the support is obviously much higher than if you call it doctor-assisted suicide. But even with that language, it's still, uh, you're talking about two-thirds saying that should be allowed. It used to be, you know, just barely half. You have oh, 56% say it's morally acceptable. It used to be, uh, you know, about half said it was morally wrong. So that's something that's changed. I mean, this is an example. There are other issues like this, right? You've had other issues where people are talking about it constantly and it changes quickly once people start talking about it. This is an issue that, you know, there hasn't been that much dialogue about. There has in certain states, Massachusetts, California, you know, a few others, Montana, Washington State. But nationally, we haven't had a very big dialogue about this other than the Brittany Maynard incident from last year that Krista mentioned. And despite that, it's moved. So it's an issue that I think, you know, a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about, um, but it's something that's moving on its own. So we'll see how that issue evolves over time. And there's there's also, I think, interesting, some like, not crosstabs, but the, the, the Pew data sort of breaks it out, um, both, well, both crosstabs by, by demographic group, but then also um, by sort of the, the situation in which someone would, would make the choice to end their life. Um, and, you know, when does a person have a moral right to suicide? And so you have 62 percent who say that um, people have a moral right to suicide when they're in great pain and there is no hope of improvement. Um, 56 percent say that they people have a moral right to suicide when they are dealing with an incurable disease. So, you know, in both of these cases, it's sort of like there's there is no better option available. Um, what was fascinating to me is that it, it changes a lot. You only have a third saying that it's that you have a moral right to suicide when there's an extremely heavy heavy burden on your family. That, um, and, and I can I guess I kind of can see why people are making that distinction because one of the big you know concerns in the debate is are people going to be pressured into making right. a choice they don't want? And so you see that reflected in the polls where generally people are leaning toward you have know, majorities supporting the moral right to suicide in situations where there's no hope of improvement. There's, there's like no way out. Right. And, you know, extremely heavy burden on the family is pretty broad as yeah. language. I mean, there are lots of people who are burdens on their family who, you know, would should not would not be eligible for this. No doctor would, you know, would would help them, um, you know, who are just, you know, burdens on their family for other reasons other than being sick. Um, so so I think that language is a little bit broad. But I think the other thing from the demographics is, you know, there's this hypothesis that in particular um, blacks and Catholics. Catholics are going to be dramatically opposed to um, this effort. You don't quite, I mean, you do see lower numbers among blacks and Catholics, but you still see 63% of Catholics and 52% of blacks saying a person has a moral right to suicide. Again, that's their word.
wording, Pew's wording, when they're in great pain with no hope of improvement. And when you look just within Protestants, actually Protestants uh, are, are the ones that are slightly more opposed than even Catholics are, um, but that there's no racial divide among between um, white evangelicals and then black Protestants, that their yeah. views are basically the same on this. Right. And again, this is without a full national dialogue. So moving on, we're going to just give you a quick Canadian announcement rather than Canadian analysis. So we are going to have a great interview with a top Canadian pollster. We're hoping to record that tomorrow. So we're going to push that out um, maybe as a standalone or maybe next week with next show. So next week's show. So we we hear you listeners because everyone seems pretty engaged in the Canadian election. So we are getting an actual Canadian polling expert. So stay tuned for that. Uh, so up next, we want to talk a little bit about a study that just came out um, from McKinsey analyzing women's work play, pathway through the workplace and sort of work-life balance issues. This is something we've talked about on the show before a little bit. We always get a great reaction from you all. We get lots of good feedback. Um, I hear from my friends who listen to our show that they like when we do these work-life balance segments. So Good. Seems like a good way. It's a good thing to celebrate my first week fully back at the office. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With some really cheerful numbers about <laughs> women in the workforce. <laughs> um, so in this McKinsey study, they, they have a, this fascinating chart that basically draws um, a pipeline of, of the workplace. And it shows what percentage of people in the workplace um, at various levels of the corporate pipeline are men versus women. So for the entry-level professional, you have about 45% of the pipeline is women as of 2015. Um, and that's actually a slight increase from 2012 when it was only 42%. So women make up almost half of all people who enter the workforce. Right. And that mirrors, you know, college and graduate programs where you have women, in fact, you know, in represented larger portions than men. The drop-off begins as you move up the corporate ladder. So then women only make up 37% of managers, 32% of senior managers and director levels, 27% of VPs, 23% of senior VPs, and only 17% who are in the C-suite. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's pretty dramatic. I mean, they ha- they basically don't have a single piece of data that they release where you don't see some really dramatic difference between men and women's experiences and the perceptions of men and women's experiences. I mean, you see as uh, people progress in their careers that women end up more uh, disproportionately in staff roles as opposed to men. Um, what's particularly interesting is when you ask people about uh, do you think women in your organization have more, fewer, or the same opportunities to advance as men? There you see a pretty dramatic difference in how women and men respond. So, for example, 43% of women say they have fewer opportunities than men. 12% of men say that women have fewer opportunities than men. That's a pretty big difference, right? You have, in fact, 16% of men say women have more opportunities as opposed to 2% of women who say, well, no, you know, (laughs) 2% of women say we have more opportunities than men. That's a pretty big, pretty big gap in the perception of discrimination or at least opportunities. Yep. Um, I just did some survey work that hasn't been fully, fully released yet, but there's a, a post up right now by Carrie Sheffield at Opportunity Lives that digs into it where I was doing some focus groups of some female voters. And we were just talking about kind of work-life balance stuff. We hadn't gotten into politics yet. Um, but a lot of them really express this view that you sort of have this, you know, uh, whether you do or you don't, like it's it's tough to win these days because there's so much pressure to be at work all the time and put in all those hours and, you know, do everything in the workplace. And if you want to leave early to go pick up your kids somewhere that, like, people will kind of look down and you like, oh, why are you leaving the office? Oh, are you not as committed as you should be? But then if you don't go pick up your kid at soccer practice, then everybody's judging you like, 
Well, why weren't you at your kid's soccer game? Right. What, you know, that, that for women that nowadays, you know, regardless of if you want to be a CEO or not, that there's so much pressure to have to, like, do it all and that no matter which choice you make, like, there will be someone there to judge you um, and say that you've made the wrong choice. Yes, yes. Best to, you know, best to not listen to those voices <laughs> if you hear them yes, wherever indeed. they come from. Um, but, you know, the, hearing stuff like that makes me terrified at the prospect of being a parent. Like, oh, know, my God, everybody's just doing the best they can. I judge you know? myself enough. Like, yeah. I can't handle I can't handle the world. Every, me. Everybody's just doing the best they can. And, you know, yep. and everybody, you know, has a bone to pick with everybody else. I mean, the other thing that's pretty interesting, too. I mean, this the data that they release really covers a lot of topics and it's quantitative. And, you know, so much of these stories are qualitative. But what they also asked about um, the division of labor at home, which is an interesting piece of this. And again, you see this difference as people progress from entry level to senior management. But the progression is maybe not what you'd expect. Women. Uh, you know, but you have the same percentage of women and men saying that they share everything, whether it's chores or even childcare, are more likely to share as people progress in uh, in their career. And uh, you see, you know, somewhat of a difference between you know, as women progress, slightly fewer of them say I do more than my husband um, as they progress. But really, it's not because men are doing more; it's because there's simply a smaller pie. The pie shrinks. They do, you know, they there's less childcare to do. Um, so I think, you know, it, again, it shows that there's it's not just at the top. It's also the sort of middle of the road, you know, place in people's career where they're so, sorting out child care, where you see some of this drop off. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that's pretty interesting, too, is who's helping you, your professional network. You have women, you know, basically yeah, I'm sort of divided whether the people who've helped them have been men, about half men and women, or women. Um, while men overwhelmingly say that people who've helped them have been men. So, I mean, that that goes to show that, you know, men, men are helping other, you know, men seem to be helping other men while women have to go, you know, kind of go all over the place. Well, and if you if you look at those charts of, you know, at what point when you, when you reach the top of the pipeline, what percentage of people there are men, in another sense, it sort of makes sense that you have such significantly higher numbers of people saying that it was men who have assisted them in their career because just the num it's that's a numbers game yeah. again that like the higher up the food chain you're talking, the more likely it is that the person who's above you in the food chain who could help you is going to be male. Yep, yep, yep. So we'll link to that. So wrapping up. Wrapping up, yes. Yeah, so wrapping up. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, so both Margie and I have been on the road this week since we were both up in New Hampshire the same time. So I've, I've had quite a bit of travel going on lately. Yes. I'm actually so, so excited that we're back in the studio. I and I think next week we're going to record in the studio together again. It's going to be three like, weeks in a row. We're getting our streak back. I this know. is wonderful. I know. It's great. It um, makes a huge difference. So Expedia did a study on travel and and um, were and asked people what they think uh, of in terms of um, hotel etiquette violation. Um, and it turned out that in this study, was this a study where there, people were asking people what they've done or what they're bothered What annoys by? them. What annoys them. Okay, that makes sense then. I was going to say, I'm like, <laughs> how could 67% of travelers say that they are inattentive parents? That seems surprising to me. So inattentive parents are actually, talk about judging other people. I know. I'm amazed that that one's the most annoying. Inattentive parents being the most annoying. Um, followed very closely by the hallway hellraisers. Maybe those are, maybe the inattentive parents are the parents of the hallway hellraisers. Could be, Who could knows? be. Then there are the complainers, 50 
54%. That always kind of drives me nuts when I'm like waiting to check in or out of a hotel and the person in front of me like has a rant that they feel they need to deliver to the person handling check in or check out. I'm like, yes. that person can't can't do anything about what you're Just the take way that your to the side because now I'm like, going to have a rant, right? If, uh, I have yeah, to wait here um, longer. The in room revelers, so I, those are people throwing parties, as separate from, by the way, the loudly amorous, which yes. is actually only 21% of people say that that's something that annoys them. I traveling. know. Well. Um, poolside partiers, the bickerers, the loudly amorous, and the hot tub canoodlers, those are all down in the 20, 20s percent-ish. The business bar boozer, only oh, I 12%. Hate those. I don't like those. That would have been high on my list, the business uh, wait, bar okay, boozer. Wait, okay, so I'm, I'm wondering, because I read that, and I'm like, did that just mean somebody going and having a drink on a business trip? Or do you mean, is this like somebody who's... Like That's embarrassing like, themselves. He, well, I mean, I just took it as like, you know, you're there, you're, you know, everybody's just trying to unwind, you know, on your business trip. And that doesn't mean that that's like an invitation for, you know, every, gotcha. that's how I took it for like oh, everyone else there. Like, yeah. like I don't, oh. I don't want to chat. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm good. Me and my glass of wine on my phone. <laughs> We're all set. I don't need you to tell me that, oh, I should, right. why are you looking why at are you your working? phone so much? Why are you working? Yeah. Oh, okay. Clearly we've had the same yes. experience. <laughs> why are you looking at your phone so much? Because I'm, guest here. This is not my hometown oh, hotel bar. Well, last but not least, the elevator chatterbox. Only 6% of people are annoyed by people who want to talk to them in the elevator. That yeah. seems like a, very, a pretty mild annoyance. Yes. So, I mean, I have. I guess I haven't done all of these things, but I have done quite a few of these things. But it's, since it's just hotels, it doesn't have all of, all of my other either annoyances or things I've actually done like you know, get up and try to jump ahead of somebody getting off the plane if they don't have their stuff ready and I'm all ready to go. That I've been trying. Uh, I've been trying to not do so often, but then I, I still did it yesterday. I'm like, oh, I really need to stop doing that. <laughs> my, my, but they're not ready. They don't have any of their stuff. My <laughs> travel thing is I am the hoverer. I hover. Like when I know that my zone is next, I'm like yes. hovering oh, right, there, right, right. waiting to board because I'm just like, I just want to be on that plane, buckled in, close my eyes, put my yes. earbuds in, and go to sleep. So I'm I'm the hoverer. Yes, that's my my vice. Yes, we we if there was a plane <laughs> plane one of these. I would be both annoyed by several and committing most of them. So. <laughs> okay, so here's what we learned: key findings: Biden mania, but can he get through the primary? And Sanders mania, but can he get through the general? And Carson mania. Right now, he's strong in both the primary and the general. Um, and one thing we know, even without the Gallup horse race, there's still plenty of horse race polling. Stay tuned, though, for more Canada news next week. And be a a good hotel guest, please. Keep your flirting online like the kids. We didn't talk about that study. We'll just have to take our word for it, rather than annoying all your fellow travelers. You can find us at at the pollsters or at Margie O'Mero and at K. Soltis Anderson on Twitter. We're also on Facebook, where you can find us posting the latest updates of polls that we find throughout the week that we think are interesting. We're at thepolsters.com, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcatcher happens to be. Great. Thanks. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.